Hello! Today I would like to interrupt the stream of Silmarillion Seminar and Fairy and Fantasy Class episodes briefly for something special I haven't done in a while, a Tolkien chat. First, however, I'd like to make an announcement. The spring courses at the Mythgard Institute are now open for enrollment, and I'm very excited about them. We're expanding our offerings to two classes in the spring of 2012. I'm teaching one course called The Making of Myth, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm really excited about this one. We're going to be looking at Lewis and Tolkien's works in parallel, at places where they're considering a similar idea or telling a similar story. They're in back-again stories in The Hobbit and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, for instance, or creation myths in The Aino Indole and The Magician's Nephew. We'll be looking carefully at the similarities and the differences between Lewis's and Tolkien's stories and ideas. It should be a great learning experience for both Tolkien fans and C.S. Lewis fans, and I find that neither of those groups gives the other author quite as much credit as he deserves. The second class we're offering this spring at Mythgard is on Harry Potter. It's called Taking Harry Seriously, The Artistry and Meanings of the Harry Potter Saga. Now, I'll be the first to admit that although I've generally enjoyed the Harry Potter books and have respect for many of the things that Rowling accomplished in them, especially in the early books, I've never really felt that they stood up to serious scrutiny in the way that both Tolkien and Lewis do. But I'm only an amateur when it comes to all things Hogwarts, and enough people whose intellect and judgment I respect have disagreed with me that I wanted to give people a chance to prove me wrong. After all, academics and literary critics have spent 50 years saying that Tolkien doesn't deserve serious consideration. So should I, as a Tolkien scholar, turn around and scoff in the same way at the more recent fantasy phenomenon? So this spring, Mythgard will be offering a course which will be team-taught by three of the leading Harry Potter experts in the world. John Granger, Travis Prinzi, and James Thomas have written and edited 12 books between them on Harry Potter. If you're a Potter fan, you may know them as the Potter Pundits from the Leaky Cauldrons podcast, or the hosts of the Hogshead Pubcast and the Hogwarts Professor. I'm myself very much looking forward to auditing this class. It should be fantastic. So, where on earth can you work toward the master's degree by studying Tolkien, Lewis, and Harry Potter with world-renowned scholars from the comfort of your own living room and at tuition rates among the lowest in America? That would be the Mythgard Institute, of course. Visit www.mythgard.org, M-Y-T-H-G-R-D.org, for more information and to enroll in classes for this spring. Okay, now that my little commercial message is over, let's get on to the Tolkien chat. I am joined in this episode by David Perlmutter, a professor, administrator, and columnist for the Chronicle of Higher Education. He and I got together over Skype to talk about two of his favorite intellectual hobbies, Tolkien and military history. But first, I'll let Dr. Perlmutter introduce himself. My name is David Perlmutter, and I'm a professor at the University of Iowa in the School of Journalism on Mass Communication. I'm also director of the school, so I'm the chief administrator. Great, great, yes, and it's great to have you uh, with us. And of course, uh, uh, David has just been confessing to me his his sort of secret clandestine interest in <laughs> in uh, science fiction and fantasy things. And we were just kind of talking about uh, different conferences and uh, kind of the the mix of of academia and uh, and 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 fan stuff. Yes, I went in my life. I've only gone to one fantasy conference, and that was, I believe, I was eleven. And I went to a Star Trek convention, although there were many other genres there. This was when the Dungeons and Dragons was huge, the role play, science fiction role-playing game Traveler. But it was mostly Star Trek. And there was two observations. One was Leonard Nimoy. Yes, Leonard Nimoy was giving a talk. And in the middle of it, he, he sort of put his hand over the microphone and whispered to somebody, could I have a glass of water? 
And uh, I think about the first 300 people in the front rows ran out <laughs> to be the one who would get Leonard Nimoy his glass of water. And I, and I just, because I always had read a lot of history, I had this vision of Napoleon at Austerlitz <laughs> saying, uh, oh, je suis besoin d'un... <laughs> And 300 guardsmen, you know, throw aside their bearskin shackles to run to get the emperor a cup, a cup of water. And, and it was a very interesting parallel towards the, the worship of, of the charismatic hero. And then the other incident I remember from this conference was an elevator opened. And, and you know how sometimes at hotels you'll have different conferences or conventions of groups that don't really quite match each other? <laughs> yes. And I swear it was a church ladies conference and they were all wearing big hats and very silky poofy dresses and they got into the elevator and five seconds later two guys with spock ears two orcs and a guy dressed as satan and you know they're just all having these conference conversations and and oh you know this was way before digital photography and smartphones of any kind and cameras and phones but oh Years years go by. I still wish I'd had a photograph of that <laughs> meeting of minds. <laughs> they didn't talk to each other, did they? No, I think they just were so focused on their own conference business that they just didn't you know, process that. Let's see, I'm going to go do a panel on on how we can smite Satan, and but here's Satan himself. Maybe we can ask him directly on how he feels being smited. Or, uh, well, anyway, the point. Uh, I, I I just think people get very internalized in these worlds and sometimes i guess that's one way you can tell the quality of an author's creation is how deeply you can become enmeshed in the internalities i call them of a world and not have to make up your own and this is what i find fascinating about tolkien is that as we both know he was a professor and he was a professor of uh, English, old English literature. He was a, a great language scholar. I, I've read a couple of biographies of him, and, and he was truly an amazing scholar. Yeah. I mean, he, he, was a, he must have been a, a fantastic teacher, too, although as I understand it, he had sort of a, a funny accent or just a, a slight uh, voice tick, and so he was a little bit hard to understand unless you listen. What is the story that he would start with the, the initial words of Beowulf, which are like wit or something like yes, that. Yes, yes, class is the, yes. The, the, yes, and the, and the class would, for years assumed he was saying quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you told that story and I missed it in a previous Yeah, podcast. well, he, he I, basically the, 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 the main thing that I've always heard about this is that he tended to speak so quickly that he would stumble over his words almost. Um, yeah. He would speak in these like bursts, these quick bursts of, of, of speech, which especially if you weren't used to it and you weren't ready for it, were, were, were pretty hard to understand. Uh, what people say is that once you got used to his conversational style and once you became acclimated to it, it wasn't that hard to understand him. But, um, but yes, he was very, uh, he, he would get, he would get very, very rapid fire and stumbling over, uh, the things that he was saying and he just kind of wouldn't, wouldn't go back. But yeah, he, he used to, used to start off his classes by reciting, well, not every class, but his Beowulf class, he would start off by reciting the first 50 lines of Beowulf in Anglo-Saxon and then just kind of move on. Right. Well, I, my introduction to Tolkien, probably like everybody else, was reading it in school. I think I was like eight or nine and a teacher assigned us to read The Hobbit. 
and I it was interested. It was a good good story, and I remember buying like the the guide to Middle Earth or something. It was like a pocket handbook of the terms of Middle Earth. And I think I embarrassed myself. I don't know whether I was actually stuffed into a locker for doing this, but <laughs> I came close to when I would pull out my guide to Middle Earth to explain what a Balrog was. And did he have wings? No, he didn't have wings. You know, right. that was important to me then. It's less yeah. important to me now, but. What struck me then is, okay, then I, I started reading Lord of the Rings, and I realized something, which to this day I've always carried me as, as, as the essence of why I love Tolkien, because I love history. And the, the thing about Tolkien is that he, it's almost as if he's not a fantasist. He's a realitist. He, mm-hmm. he, creates, he created a world that was so deep and so rich, and every little detail is so worked out. There's al- almost nothing left to imagine independently. It's all almost all covered, especially now with all, the huge output of Christopher Tolkien of all of these manuscripts. And it's just—it's almost as if you found a lost civilization. These archaeologists uncovered a lost civilization with these immense chronicles of kings and like personal diaries of monks or something. It's just so big and it's so fascinating and it's so beautifully filled out it it you know like there's role i don't do this don't enough time to do it but these role-playing games now where you can wander around yes. know, thousands of miles or something and you know every rock has a snake under it it's all it's all <laughs> been thought out but but this was one man's mind it really is a truly amazing literary achievement above all other things plus just being really interesting reading yeah and you know it's 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 the thing that i find really fascinating i mean thinking back over the two of those things that you were just saying is that on the one hand as you say it's 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 so carefully worked out that there are few uh, at least within the, the 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 portions of the world where the story takes place there aren't there there are there's just so few things that are that, that are left out few white spaces to just kind of fill in you've got the white spaces around the edges of the map like we don't really know what's south of harad and we don't really know what's east of mordor but um but within the realms that the story is concerned in the whole thing has been rounded out very fully. But of course, the interesting thing is that kind of paradoxically, uh, as so many people have found, it also leaves, by how thoroughly he has filled it out, it has also created this tr- tremendously fertile field for imagination, you know, that, and that it's, it's so easy for people to lose themselves and immerse themselves. I don't mean lose themselves in a negative way, but really immerse themselves in it, um, because, it is such an intellectually satisfying experience to immerse yourself in it. Um, and I think that's one of the things that people find really attractive uh, in it too, that there, that, that there is so much, there's so much for the imagination uh, to kind of hang on to and work with uh, within all of these, all of these systems and things that he has worked out and, 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 and developed um, that it's uh, that I just I think that that's one of the things that really gets people. And I'm thinking of uh, what you were talking about about his being a a a, a, a realitist instead of a fantasist. And you know I, I think of this especially when I'm talking with Tolkien fans about especially about the films, and you know talking to 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 people who are sort of purists and object to some of the changes and alterations that that are made in the films. And I you know I find. I find that there's a difference um, in talking to Tolkien fans compared to talking talking to fans of of other works when they're talking about film adaptations of books and things. That is, many times people who you know I I think for instance just to make a comparison, uh, my wife is an enormous Jane Austen fan and I I I, I 
like Jane Austen very much too, and the two of us are always interested when they come out with a new adaptation of a Jane Austen film. And Does she many- call you Mr. Darcy? <laughs> no, no, no. Because I, I think you look exactly <laughs> like the, the the gentleman in, in Pride and Prejudice. It really, well, if anybody just please go on. That is extremely uh, flattering. <laughs> just, really. Tall, dark, handsome. Really, that's why she picked you out, though. Yeah. Fortunately, she met me before those films came out, though only just. Um, but uh, but anyway, no, it's it's uh, uh, when we're watching the adaptations. You know, there are lots of times where we will disagree, sometimes violently disagree, with some of the interpretive changes uh, that are made to the characters, and sometimes these will be very comical, and the story will be altered in crazy ways. But there's not the same sense when Tolkien fans object. To the films, there's this sense of like you are making a factual inaccuracy. Like you, you are, you are, you are simply guilty of a like you're getting it wrong, and uh, and I, I can really sympathize with that. I mean, I do, and I have many times on the podcast sort of defended the right of people, you know, somebody like Peter Jackson who is retelling a story in a different mode. That it's you know, it's a different story. It's not the same story. He, you know, he he can't tell exactly the same story. It's you know, you can't do that, but. I am sympathetic to that that impulse and that feeling because, and I think that that is one of the effects of the thoroughness with which Tolkien has built his world. It, as you said, it feels like history. It doesn't feel like one person's story, which you know another person might retell. Um, the, you know, there, yeah, there is are the, there are go ahead. fantasy writers. I mean, I'm a big Game of Thrones fan. I think mm-hmm. what George R. R. Martin did was spectacular the hbo adaptation is excellent i think they made a lot of correct choices a few i would challenge but when my wife and i were watching game of thrones we we we, we exactly what you're saying we talked about like yeah that Tyrion lannister great casting uh, he he makes the part we never said no 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 you know according to the chronicles Tyrion was three inches taller and i <laughs> right. can prove it if i go through you know chronicle 47 a letter 17 that, you know, <laughs> right and, and so as as somebody who grew up with a deep love of, of history my mother was greek and um always we just had a lot of history books around the house I mean, my both my parents were university professors uh, I mean, the, the joke is on, on my father's side, I come from a long line of rabbis and teachers, and from my mother's side, I come from a long line of military officers. So, a sort of interest in military history and in history in general, I think, was just uh, destined and I guess doomed uh, for me. So, so what I wanted to uh, get a chance to talk to you w- was about the military aspect of Tolkien. And uh, interestingly enough, I think it's something that's rarely talked about. I don't hear a lot of discussions about warfare in a general sense. I think people are sort of focused on many other questions. Now, you probably can correct me here because you must have a lot of students who've done papers, but I'm just sort of curious, has anybody done a paper on battles in Tolkien? You know, it's funny because I actually also think that that's a little bit under, that that's a little bit under done, under-focused on. That is, there will be some people who will point out um, similarities between, say, Tolkien's description of certain battles and the treatment of warfare in Anglo-Saxon works like the Battle of Malton, for instance. Um, you know, so be th- looking at some kind of similarities between the you know, sort of the ethos of Tolkien's work and, 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 and the ethos of these other uh, earlier warfare stories. But 
you know, more often the, the 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 sort of hottest thing to talk about in Tolkien studies now in relationship to war um, is World War One and Tolkien's World War One experience, and it, that's the impact of his World War One experience um, in his early life on Tolkien's creative world afterwards. And this is really, this of course has been, every, you know, for the last five, yeah, six years, yeah. people have been talking about this ever since John Garth's book came out, Tolkien and the Great War. And, and the, the funny thing about that for me, Professor Olson, is that if you knew nothing about Tolkien, if, if the biography, if, if just you picked up the Lord of the Rings and it was like the manuscript of the Battle of Malden where you're missing the first couple pages and missing the last couple pages. You just didn't know who wrote it and when. You just, maybe you, you were at an airport and you just never heard of it. I actually deny that you could tell anything about the author's experience of war from the manuscript. In other words, if you just read it without the knowledge of his actual background, I don't think you'd say, oh, boy, this is somebody who went through World War I. Right. Because those battles that are depicted, and, 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 I, and I don't claim expertise over every single comment, but I, I'd like mostly to talk about The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and then The Children of Huron mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, of battles and war. And I'm really less familiar with the Cimmerillion, I guess just taste and, and, and everything. But I can't think of a single battle which was a Western Front trench stalemate, for example. And, right. And now, somebody could argue that, well, maybe maybe the battles express the kind of war that first does show horror of war, that I mean, it shows the, 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 the terrible suffering of war, but also maybe shows the kind of war that Tolkien wished he had been fighting, which, of course, the British and the French and Germans all marched off you know, before the autumn leaves fall, they all they all marched off thinking they were going to fight the Franco-Prussian War, or right. the Napoleonic Wars, and it'd be a decisive battle, and the you know the, the clash of of of, of, of uh, the struggle of nations, and boom, you know somebody would win. The idea of absolute stalemate. Some people had predicted it based on the American Civil War and the Boer War, and so on. But there really no no general said, you know, we're going to fight for four four and a half years, and it's mainly going to be an economic will of of, of attrition, and that doesn't go on. Uh, I mean, the, the classic Tolkien battle. I mean, you, you, I think describes almost all of them is that the, uh, you know, the the the, the, the armies line up. Uh, there is some description of strategy and tactics. Like, and I'll just I'll just take the 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 battle of. Unnumbered Tears mm-hmm. in The Children of Huron. That may be less familiar to your readers, so uh, I'll just talk about it. Children of Huron, which of course is set in pre... Uh, I'm sorry, it's the first age, is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's yeah, right. Okay, yeah. So it's a, it's a great battle between the, the hosts of the, the Alliance of Elves and, and Men uh, before the gates of uh, is the, uh, the great fortress of... Uh, Nar- Nar- of <laughs> Angband, yeah, yeah. Angband, Angband yeah. There's a lot of interesting Tolkien music on the, uh, the the web, and there's a battle of Aang band I was just listening to it. Um, so, uh, the the hosts of the of the elves and the men ride up essentially to this not really well described fortress. I mean, it, you don't really get a sense of like it's got this many keeps and this right. many murder holes and whatever. But it's a for, it's some it's mostly underground, and there's some fleeting description of the tactics of Morgoth as in like. You know, he planned to draw them in this way with one host, but keep another host in reserve. So, so some some tactics are talked about in terms of uh, surprise, 
you know, uh, a flank movement. You know, I mean, maybe this was Morgoth's can I, you know, right. drawing in. And, there, and actually, what's, what, now here's a par- some interesting parallels, is that both at can I, can I was the classic, probably the, the most famous battle in history where Hannibal destroyed a, an a Roman army with, I think, was either two or three times his size by classically drawing them in to his center while he attacked them with his, the Roman army with much less and much uh, less effective cavalry on the two sides. And so there's always been in military history this idea that generals have been obsessed with Cannae, where you, in one battle, completely annihilate the enemy army. And if Hannibal had, as is Livy, the Roman historian, talks about, if, if Hannibal had marched on Rome that day, he would have conquered Rome. And famously, his brother-in-law, the cavalry general, Maharbal, said, you know, uh, Hannibal knows how to win a battle, but not to, to win a war. And, you know, so he didn't march on Rome, Rome that day. But generals have been obsessed with Cannae. And, you know, actually the German plan, the Schlieffen plan to attack France was a gigantic Cannae. Right. Um, so, so there was. You, you could say, well, yeah, that Morgoth's plan at the Battle of Unnumbered Tears was sort of a cani, and it and it worked in that it lured the uh, elves and men to attack him uh, before they were fully ready, before they understood what you know, uh, his plan. But you don't necessarily get a sense of command and control in battles. Mm-hmm. You, you don't get this. There's, there, there are very few strategy. They're not strategy sessions where the generals get together and lay down maps and Gandalf says, okay, now, you know, we need the dwarves to hold the right <laughs> flank right. while we do a defilade with, you know, some eagles and then we'll do this. It's, it's, it's very individualistic. And I think this is one of the, the keys to understanding uh, Tolkien, and, and again, you can make a case that this is a rejection of World War One as, as much as it was reflected by World War One. It's a heroic age. I mean, it almost seems like, oh yeah, duh, right? You have to point that out. But that's the battles are won in a hero in a heroic fashion, where an individual has charismatic authority in the battlefield. Yes. Now we know from many battles in history, or at least it was described that way, that that's actually true. You know, the Battle of Alesia. Uh, in Gaul, between Caesar and the Gauls under Vercingetorix, and there's right. this climactic, mo- this famous battle where Caesar has surrounded a Gaulish town where there's a huge Gaulish army, but then Caesar is besieged by another Gaulish army. <laughs> so there's this donut battle, and this climactic moment, Caesar, well, of course, he describes himself doing that, but it's probably true, shows up in his scarlet cloak, and his personal intervention is decisive and the Romans win. Now, there are probably hundreds of thousands of people fighting that day, but absolutely in ancient warfare and medieval warfare and in knights warfare as well as you know hoplite warfare, a charismatic individual could be important. And Gandalf is a very good example of that. Yeah, and of course... Charismatic person. Yeah. Of course, I'm thinking there, too, of of Aragorn and also Theoden in the Battle of Helm's Deep. I mean, uh, the the moment that... When I think of charismatic leaders uh, on the battlefield, you know, to me, the the kind of archetypal... The kind of archetypal moment of that in Tolkien is that moment when Aragorn stands up above the, the, the gate and calls for a parley to the, you know, to the orcs and wild men who are about to sack the Hornburg and threaten them and says that not one of them will be spared if they don't leave right away and then right after that the 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 sun rises and they charge out and um 
and and the enemy is all destroyed. Um, now, of course, they have help in, a, in their their own individual heroic valor and leadership is assisted by the fact that you know the 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 valley has filled with the army of the Huorns, which has cut off the retreat of the enemy. Um, but still, it's you know there is that moment, the turning point in that battle um, is not in any way a tactical one. It is simply uh, the that 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 kind of not not only charisma but but just heroism when they just charge out into right. the enemy that vastly Personal overwhelms example. them. Pers- follow me. Personal example, and I wrote a book a number of years ago uh, called Visions of War, and it was a history of the visual depiction of warfare. And I went back. Well, as far as we can go, I went back to the earliest cave paintings, and, and since the book was lit in the late, late 90s, I ended around the Bosnia War. And I had a chapter on war commandership and the, the earliest visual depictions, and, and some of them are really startling. I mean, we have a, uh, a, a rock painting from, uh, pre, from Aboriginal Australia where you see two groups fighting with each other. And in the front rank, I mean, in, in, in other words, in the, 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 the place which is closest to the enemy, you see a man depicted on each side who is physically much larger than right. anyone else on his size, wearing a different headdress, has different weaponry, and strikes a different attitude. Now, we don't know what they were, de- we don't know who these people were. Right. This is fi- 5,000 years ago, but my God, we can tell he was probably the, the leader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so we've been, it's been very, very clear since really the earliest that we can see that a powerful big man, literally a big man, yeah. uh, on the battlefield can be decisive, especially on that all important morale. Of troops. Now, well, yeah, and I think, oh, and of course, you'll know more about this than I will. But uh, I mean, the 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 stories that there were uh, in some of the battles of Alexander the Great, when 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 he was the first man over the wall, absolutely besieging. Famous, I mean, yeah, yeah, which he, seems completely one, insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, if if we didn't know it was fact, a lot of ancient warfare and medieval warfare reads like fantasy. Yes. Um, my my problem with Tolkien, I always want to, when I use the word problem in Tolkien, I always want to say, you know, Tolkien, um, amazing achievement, really startling amount of, as I said, detail and thought, very good writer, storyteller, uh, holds up as well today as he did 60, 70 years ago. I think what struck me when I was first reading Tolkien, at that time I was a, mi- a military history obsessed 11-year-old, and I was also playing a lot of war games, and these were not the silly war games of today. These were big war games where you'd play war in Russia with like 2,000 pieces and like individual right. tanks. And I mean, it was just, it was very complicated. And you'd learn a lot about, it was really great as a historical education. You'd learn a lot about logistics and, and, and so on. And, uh, well, what struck me is that Tolkien obviously intercedes himself. He is the deus ex machina. Mm-hmm. Some of those battles, I honestly believe if they actually were fought, they wouldn't have turned out the way they did. Yeah. <laughs> it was obviously Tolkien was Tolkien had a problem with evil and that, that he couldn't allow evil to win. Uh, that's not a problem a lot of modern writers had. Uh, it it is a it is a, an issue that he had with himself. And so 
that's why some of the battles, frankly, get a little bit silly with just the, the continual divine intervention. I mean, here comes the eagles. Okay, right. yeah, I know the eagles <laughs> are going to come. I mean, okay, what, you know, here comes the groundhogs to save the day. <laughs> the puffins, you know, the inter- divine intervention of the puffins, you know, giant puffins. Uh, the, the Battle of the Five Armies in The Hobbit, that was the first one I read that because I was thinking to myself, well, yeah, now, first of all, those, those dwarves, I know dwarves, okay, I get it, dwarves are hardy. Right. Okay, yeah. I get it. But they, the, those five hundred dwarves from Dane was Dane, son of Nain. Yeah. The, 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 they haven't they just walked, marched like two hundred miles or something like that in full pack. Yeah, they, they they had just yeah marched with with extra pack. We're told, um, yeah. and they had just finished an all night forced march. Yeah. So so yeah. I was like, ah, well, all right. So they're like immortals or something. They're they're like three hundred Spartans. I mean, they're really just tough. okay. I, I guess so. Uh, and but then the continual intervention of like okay well the bad sides are winning but don't worry kids it, it, it felt a little childish mm-hmm. it felt like when I played those games and I wanted one side to win and I would cheat <laughs> right <laughs> or, or or you know my friends and I would be playing a game and and n- nobody wants to be the side that won historically because there's no there's no glory in that right uh, right this leads to uh, sort of uncomfortable stuff like you know you play world war ii and you want to be the germans and you want to win <laughs> right <laughs> because you get to brag that you know you did better than than history and it felt sometimes he was just sort of a kid sticking his hand in and saying uh, uh, you know the, the orcs are winning i'm gonna put you know stop it and and oh, eagles that's it eagles eagles yeah. will, will will come in now I want to put this in context, if if I may, and I'm sorry for going on. By the way, I get so excited we're talking. To no, 20, that's great. It's 20 years pent up conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so what does that mean? It it means that sometimes Tolkien has to disobey some of the historical and physical realities he's set up. And and let's take the Battle of Hornburg for example. Now, in Peter Jackson's film, that prop that problem of sort of childish intervention, well, it, it, it becomes ridiculously obvious. Those are heavily armored steel plate infantry with long halibards and spears. Yes. I'm sorry, but no cavalry. <laughs> yes. No, it doesn't matter if they're mailed or whatever. First of all, horses would not do, do not charge halibirds and spears and run right up to them. Yes. And, yes. and second, you have a densely packed, you know, it would take tens of thousands, my lord. No, tens of thousands. Uh, you know, right. Okay, so you have 10,000 uruk right there in a dense pack, all with steel plate armor and halibards and spears. I'm sorry, you, you could send... You know, Napoleon's guard cavalry headlong <laughs> to that, and they would be repulsed. I don't care if the sun's behind him or not the sun's behind them. That's yeah. essentially magic there. That's yeah. not... No, I mean, I was thinking the same thing when I saw the film, is that it, it they really make it um, seem just visually improbable. I mean, I was ready for them to sweep down and... And win the day once I, you know, I, I, you know, I wasn't surprised to see uh, Gandalf's arrival with reinforcements be done somewhat more dramatically in the film than it was in the book, but, um, but nevertheless, uh, uh, yeah, the way that they, I mean, I was thinking the same thing. I was, you know, the the orcs looked really, actually, quite prepared to receive the cavalry charge in exactly the classic way one does receive a cavalry charge. Fight! They're going to go fight. Uh, an heiress, essentially uh, a uh, 
uh, I was trying to think of the ancient people that that, that their their entire army was uh, cavalry. It was the, uh, the the was not the Visigoths, but the uh, the North African uh, the the Goths that took over in North Africa. I, I I can't believe I'm blanking on this now, but they they essentially degenerated into nothing but an aristocratic cavalry. So when the Byzantines came along with a sort of mixed army, they were they figured out how, they knew how to defeat an all cavalry army that has no other division. Now here was an all cavalry army versus an all infantry army. But these Urukai, we've been for for half an hour we've been told like these are elite tough guys. These aren't these normal sniveling orcs that, you know, right. three 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 two year old children will charge them and they'll come they'll come sniveling back to, to Mordor. These are these supposedly super tough and again they're wearing what, ninety pounds of, of steel plate. <laughs> Uh, I don't think a sword can even go through that. It, I, as far as I could tell, the the, uh, the riders of Rohan had no archery. There is some the the uh, the let's see in the, well in the films there are a few archers on the walls. So the majority of the archers in the film on the walls are the elves who uh, who come in kind of out of nowhere. Um, in the book, Legolas mentions that they have. That their archers are are pretty good, but that they're too few. That they don't have that many of them. Yeah. And so there's a reference in the Battle of Pelennor Field that there are that they do have some cavalry archers um, who were going after, who were helping to go after the Oliphants, yeah. the Muma kill. But 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 yeah. So so historically, how does cavalry defeat infantry? The cavalry cannot charge dense squares. Right. Infantry. That was true in ancient world. It was true at Water, Waterloo. Uh, the typical cavalry tactic was the ones that the, the Parthians and the Persians used against the Romans, which is harass them with right. archery, uh, drive them crazy, break them up. Finally, when they break up in the smaller units, then you can ride them down. Right. But that. But but again, there's no sense of tactics at Hornburg. There's just like Gandalf says, "Okay, everybody ride." I mean, there's just this dense mass of horsemen. They're not even divided into banners, you know. There's no. This is, I mean, really. I mean, that's what the way they do it. They just have like ten thousand guys who all just ride with their horses, you know, hooves brushing each other. So, so it it it's. And again, this is not a deep criticism of Tolkien. I think he's doing this for a purpose because I think the battles weren't as important. Mm-hmm. The battles were were tertiary to the other parts of of the story. And so the divine intervention, whether it's the, goal, the the ring dropping into Mount Doom or this intercession or that intercession, I, I think he didn't think them through personally. I felt they don't feel as carefully thought through as, say, the language. Or other yes, things. yes, no, I agree. I mean, I, and I think that I think that it is clear that he's just not interested in battlefield tactics to the extent of really developing t- so that because i mean there are some there are some stories that that you know there, there are other fantasists that you can read even as you said martin is clearly much more interested in battlefield tactics than tolkien was oh yeah uh yeah. and and you know and and in, in some fantasists who are really interested in that, the actual storyline of, you know, what are the battlefield strategies that, you know, that win the day in this one particular conflict, um, where that is itself a really compelling part of the story, it, 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 it almost never is in Tolkien. I mean, some of the examples that you've given um, already, I think, are actually some of the 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 more pronounced examples in Tolkien, uh, that is, for instance, as you mentioned, the, in, at least in the beginning of the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, we get more, 
uh, tactics there than we get in most other places. Um, and in, that's the tactics of the enemy. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. And the 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 good guys have some tactics too, but again, it's pretty simple. Like, you know, that, that Fingen is supposed to engage the armies and then Mithros is going to come up from the other side and they're going to take them as between Hammer and Anvil. But it's really crude tactically. It's like, your big army is over here, you're going to fight this other big army in the middle, and then our big army is going to come up and, and we're going to fight them from the other side. I mean, that that, that is tactics, but it's not... It's, it is certainly not uh, of the sort that you mentioned, like, okay, we shall position our elven archers over here, and then you know, the human cavalry will charge down this way and do the... the he, he's, he's definitely not engaging in that. In the Battle of Five Armies, we do get some tactics. Uh, that is, you know, we get, for instance, the sort of the uh, the the forlorn hope of 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 the humans from Lake Town who uh, who form this wall to induce the orcs to charge, and then so that they get drawn in between the two arms of the mountain, so that the dwarves and elves can attack from up above, and uh, and then you've got the orcs who creep up the other side of the mountain and then come down and attack them from above, and and you know so. It, there again, some of the some of the tactical descriptions that we get there, though again, it's clear that he's not sort of reveling in this. Yet, nevertheless, it is an important part of that story of the battle. But again, but as you, but I agree with you, it's quite it's quite rare. You think of, for instance, I mean, in the greatest battle scene that he depicts, the Battle of the Pelennor Field at Minas Tirith, there's very little in terms of you've got the great charge of Theoden and and uh, and the riders of Rohan and then it's just one you know the by description one mass of 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 you know the good guys fighting against the mass of the bad guys we get some details as i said of the the pursuit of the mumakil by the archers we get some uh, you know, an elf helm going out among and destroying the siege equipment on the field, but not, but but very little. Certainly, much less than uh, than than someone who was really for whom the battle tactics were really a crucial, a crucial uh, element of the story would do it. He, as, as you say, and I, I think some of it is, as you said, it's be, him being more interested in individuals. In the Battle of Pelennor Field, he's more interested in following first Theoden and then Aemir uh, through the Yon Field, you know, and then up to his meeting with, with Aragorn. But also, in a sense, I would say that his interests are kind of wider than that. That is less... He's not. He's he's less interested in the movement of troops and in tactical genius than he is in sort of the much broader picture of of good versus evil. Again, in the terms that you've mentioned, that those are you know the the sense of again back to the Battle of the Hornburg. Um, that Im- when the orcs are defeated, the orcs are not defeated by any kind of military supremacy. I mean, again, they had the military supremacy. In fact, they had almost won the victory when Aragorn is threatening to just <laughs> that they're all going to die. Um, but that, to me, the, the, the compelling thing, the, the, the story that Tolkien is really telling there is in the last image of the orcs, the last we see of those Urukai, is when they are retreating in front of Theoden, and they are confronted by the sudden and unexpected forest that has appeared uh, down down in the coom, and they uh, and they're cowering there, not sure where to go, in terror of the king and in terror of the trees, um, and then they decide to 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 risk the trees, which turns out not to be the right choice. But um, but anyway, so I mean th- that 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 moment of the orcs. 
standing there in fear and indecision. That seems to me the story that we're the story that he is getting at, and that he is is basically kind of casting aside um, almost any. See, I almost said realism, but that's not exactly right. Um, attention to to that kind of detail um, that is of exactly how um, you know which troops met which troops and how they were marshaled on the field. Um, that that gets kind of is clearly superfluous to the story that he's telling in that moment. Well, I, I think that's a key factor. So we we started out by both agreeing, and, and I think anyone reading Tolkien is that Tolkien is a master of detail. I mean, just you know, you, to to come up with to explain one inscription, he'll invent an entire language. You know? Right, right. <laughs> you know? But so when he chooses to paint something more diffusely. It, it it must be a conscious choice. That's why I think the question of World War One is an interesting one because I, I I began by saying I don't think you could tell if you didn't know from the story that this is some oh this was somebody who suffered through World War One. Afterwards, maybe you can say okay, well maybe he's rejecting warfare. There's all you know the you to. The, the beginning of folly is to break apart something to look at it. The rejection of technology. You know, it's fascinating to me that the the good people, the good, uh, almost completely eschew technology, mm-hmm. especially in battle. Now, in the real world, generals are always looking for the latest edge. But yeah. the the good people in Tolkien basically they what they got a sword and a horse and maybe <laughs> a bow and an axe. Uh, it's yep. Mordor and uh, and uh, yeah, Isengard who are trying to figure out. Oh, you know, see this. We'll build this siege engine and we'll gunpowder and all and of that this. is and that is yeah. even more um, that is even more pointed in the Silmarillion and and to you can see snatches of it in the Children of Hurin. Uh, Morgoth is has a as a very active and continuously running research and development department. He is always coming out with the latest war machine. The dragons are sort of the classic example of uh, they are they are, you know, a war project that Morgoth has built up from scratch and is continuously refining from uh from Glaurung uh who's the dragon and the children of Hurin, um, and he's the prototype. But then he continues to refine it until finally he develops the winged dragons, and 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 finally, at the last minute and briefly, develops an air force. But then it, but then it, but then yeah. he loses. So th- um, this is fascinating to me: is is that, is that evil has an active bio bio warfare program? You know, as you say, I love that image. By the way, that there's this this lab in Angband or Mordor. Where yeah, you really get or- that that, that impression. <laughs> You know, or, or, you imagine more, you know, Sar- Sauron comes along and says, "So, you know, hey, I, I, you know how much I've invested in this project? It's <laughs> over budget. Uh, it's not delivering. You know, these siege engines keep turning over. Uh, I'm going to pull the plug here, okay? And, and pull the plug in Mordor means I'm killing all of you. Maybe, That's right. You know, throwing you into a fiery pit or something. I mean, th- by the way, this is what always uh, I've I've always been interested in uh, the sort of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of of fiction and history, what, what's happening on the edges. There was mm-hmm. a famous episode of Babylon 5, which I think was completely brilliant. And for those of you who didn't watch Babylon 5, surprise, it was set in a space station. And, well, they're heroic characters who are fighting these big battles, but they had one episode, one episode where you spent the whole episode following two maintenance technicians. And the heroes who were, who were dealing with some big battle in politics were in the background. 
So you only heard snatches of what the heroes were doing through the point of view of the guys who had to clean up the mess on deck five. You know, and <laughs> we're talking about getting off at six and they're going to go check out the new maid at the bar or something like that. And I've, so I've always been interested in, in what uh, people were doing on the, the sides or the, the, maybe the common soldier, the sergeant. Uh, if you saw the movie Last of the Mohicans, in, there's a scene where the British fort is about to surrender to the French. And the French commander comes out and on all his dignity and his men in full, you know, the band playing. And the British commander comes out in all his dignity and men marching. And the uh, French commander says, it's a wonderful line, you know, you've done all that is required for the honor of your prince. And uh, the British commander says, my men would sooner dig their graves and die here than... Or I think it's a British officer says, "My men, the, the men would rather dig their graves and die here than you know surrender." And I'm thinking, I'm Private Number Seventeen, you know, and right. I'm going, "Well, actually, sir, we wouldn't mind uh, surrendering, you know, if we got good terms. I don't really want to die for this godforsaken fort here in the front, you know." Right. And, and so you, you, I, th- now that's the other part is that um, because you're getting the hero's point of view. You know, the Samwise Ganji angle on a lot of these things is lost. Uh, yes. You're not, well, you're not getting, you're not, to me, you're not getting, uh, uh, you're not getting, um, before the battle of, I'm blanking now. You're not, you're not learning about the common soldier as much in right. Tolkien, I felt. That's true. If you were doing an American war movie, let's put it that way. I mean, there's right. no GI orc. I mean, no, no, right. that, no, that's not true. You you heard, you hear individual orcs sort of squabbling and like, you know, the, the eye wants this and the white hand wants that. And I really thought that was a, a very good scene uh, there, which gave us some perspective. Mm-hmm. But because he takes these battles from this, I guess, God's eye view, uh, it, it's just you feel there's a, there's things that he could have worked out, but he chose not to. And, and, and the, the siege of Minas Tirith is a very good example. Yeah. And, and maybe I'm using Peter Jackson's visualization here, but like here's a city on the edge of nothing. I'm thinking, where's the villages that support this city? You know, what do they eat? You know? Right. Yeah. You know, and that is clearly the, where's the supply train. Yes. Uh, that, you know, that the is clearly of Rohan more have ten thousand riders, and as far as I can see, I can see none of them has a backpack. You know, like <laughs> yeah. what they just had like one sausage or something, and <laughs> right know. power bars. But and, uh, and they're they're so densely packed, and I'm thinking, okay, so what? All ten thousand of them like go for the same patch of grass and the same. I mean, it, the the logistics of battle don't make sense either. When you when the the orcs march off to war again, you don't hear about like and then you know five thousand carts. You know, 100 washerwomen, you know, 300. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, uh, Tolkien definitely did work that out more clearly, certainly in Minas Tirith. There are those references. Uh, there are references to the fact that Minas Tirith has great store long prepared uh, of provisions that it has gathered fr- from the countryside and that it is, we, we do get a glimpse of how it is being supported, uh, that is, how the city is being provisioned and supported um, by the fields uh, of the of the the lands south of it um, from from the Falas and down the Anduin towards the sea and that is one of the reasons that everyone is really uh, 
is really upset when they see the black fleet sailing up the river because then they say, oh, well, then Belfalis is taken. And basically they know that they're cut off and completely trapped at that point, that not only can they not escape, but that all of their supply is completely cut off. Um, but miraculous intervention, it's not the Corsairs of Umbar. Exactly. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess, uh, Professor, I, wanted to, I, I really wanted to have a chance to ask you this question. Do you see do you see in in battles in the whole span of the 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 world of Arda of the history of Arda do you see the same level of realism anywhere that he expends on so many other things and how, do you see this as a as a rejection of warfare or just he's not as interested in warfare I I don't remember, I mean, I, and I am one hundredth of the scholar of this. You are, so I haven't read every letter, and maybe he has some letter where he talks about this and his choices of battle and detail. Well, I mean, I do think that he was not. He he definitely was not interested in war, you know. And I, I think about here. Um, I'm thinking about the things that Faramir says about war. And the way in which, basically, Faramir's perspective on war, I think, comes seems to me to come fairly close to being a description, a fair description of how Tolkien himself seems to treat it in the books as a whole. When he talks about, when Faramir talks about the necessity for war, and how, you know, the the men of Gondor are prepared for war and everything, but he says, you know, that they don't see it as an end in itself. And, you know, that, that he doesn't love war, he only loves uh, the city of Gondor, which the armies of, of Gondor defend. Um, and he is not interested in war as an end. And he talks about people, you know, and he, and he, he points the finger at the Rohirrim. Um, and even at other, you know, at, you know, in these latter days, uh, the ways that, you know, with with uh, the Numenorean blood being diffused, and and how the people of Gondor are becoming as lesser men, that they are becoming to see war as, you know, as much of a sport and a pastime um, as simply a necessity um, in order to defend their land, and basically that seems to me a fair way, a fair kind of. Well, I don't want to say a key because that makes it sound really crude, but I think that that. Anyway, that does seem to me to be a key that fits the lock here, because... Yes, and, and, and if I may interject yeah, just go ahead. a moment here. Uh, so in this book, Visions of War, I talked about the nature of culpability in war. And um, I, I refer, of course, to the uh, famous uh, warrior of the 20th century, uh, Bugs Bunny. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, years ago, I, I, I read the biogra- autobiography of, of Chuck... Uh, uh, Chuck Stone. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> when you're in a podcast, you forget these things. The, uh, the well, the originator of Daffy Duck, but he did. He was the director of many, many, many uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons, mm-hmm. and he made this fascinating comment where he said, "If you look at every single Bugs Bunny cartoon, it is uh, a sort of description in miniature of the American view of itself." And war, and that Bugs Bunny is always just sort of minding his own business. You know, he's he's eating his carrots, he's doing something, and somebody comes along—a monster, a hunter. Somebody comes and provokes him, and right. provokes him, and provokes him, and then Bug Bunny says, "Okay, 
you realize this means war. Right. And right. then and then he engages in massive retaliation, which completely destroys the enemy, <laughs> so that they wish they never fooled with Bugs Money. And and Chuck Jones, excuse me, Chuck Jones was talking about how that was the essence of how America saw itself. America sees itself, and which I you know I personally believe is actually true in many cases that we're sitting here and other people coming, you know, bomb Pearl Harbor. Okay, all right. right. <laughs> you, okay, yeah, you got us there. Now we're gonna you know, we're gonna flatten your country because you did this to America. And if you look at a lot of World War II films, that that's actually stated. Uh, the Purple mm-hmm. Heart, the famous film about the captured American air- airmen, with a, a famous speech at the end of it, where Dana Andrews, the American airman, said, "You know, you we didn't ask for this war. You started it. Well, now we're gonna blacken your cities and you know burn your your country uh, to the ground." So there is the. I feel that there's that, that comes across in Tolkien too. That's very English as well. That you know, England doesn't start wars. England responds to other people's provocations. The view of the Englishman versus the German. The England. The Englishman just wants to defend his island. Right. Has no interest in conquering. But the Ger- The German. You know, the ac- The empire aside, the German. The German wants continually more. And you can. This is I. I after nine eleven, I gave a little lecture in one of my classes, and I talked about the concept of the enemy, big E, mm-hmm. capital letters, big enemy. In which I, I made a list of interesting comments by uh, by Gandalf on the nature of the enemy, and in in Tolkien, I talked about the enemy. You can you can never negotiate with the enemy. Any negotiation is just a prelude to them grabbing more of you. They want everything. They are true totalitarians in that Morgoth or Sauron, they want everything. They mm-hmm. want all of Arda. You, they may feign a negotiation or a parley or something, but it's always a pretense towards further conquests. And this was obviously the view, which you know, I, I, I hold, we still today, of conquerors like Hitler that you know you could you could certainly make a temporary deal with him but he was just playing a game to to get you for the next conquest right and and so you could and that was a few many held of the Germans in World War 1 as well right so the, one way of looking at Tolkien's sort of grand view of war is exactly what you just said and I think that that just really sums it up is that it's necessary Tolkien was not a pacifist in real life exactly it, there the good people have to rally they have to fight. There is no, there's no escaping having to fight. And in fighting, you have to be as brutal. I mean, let's face it, the good people, think about this, the good people in the Lord of the Rings engage in, in several genocides. I mean, yeah. They, they, don't, they don't like spare, you don't know much, find out about orc women and children, but there's no mercy. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and 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 you think about the, and this is one of the things that people have the hardest time with when th- trying to think about it in terms of, you know, if you want to see Tolkien as responding to World War One and and to the, you know, is as, as, as a response to the horrors of war, and it's kind of hard to reconcile with, you know, Gimli and Legolas cheerfully keeping score of how many orcs they've killed and. Um, uh, you know, I mean, even, even sort of small references, like, uh, 
you know, Gimli's axe falls out of his belt when he bows to Treebeard, and uh, Treebeard is like, oh, an or- an or- a dwarf and an, and an axe wielder. And uh, Legolas says, you know, his axe is not for trees, but for Orknecks. 42 he hewed in the battle, and Treebeard is like, oh, oh, that is a better story. Like, you've slaughtered many people? That is fantastic. You know, I mean, it's, there's, there is a, there is this kind of unashamed uh, delight in, in having, in, in, even among the good people, even Aragorn yeah. talks this way and, and Gandalf never uh, never misses an opportunity always chooses not to do what what I think we would automatically demand of a 21st century writer and that is to humanize the enemy yes you know, so, and and the, you know there's no moment when these two orcs are talking and they say oh my orc wife Shedrak she's <laughs> she's had her first baby and I, I, I won't be able to see it until this war with the terrible humans is over. You know, Shedrak's mother was right. killed by an elf. You know, if if Tolkien and I respect Tolkien for that. In fact, yeah, I I I find it painful when these forced moments of humanization of the enemy are stuck into science fiction films. You know, I I. I I, I I watched these as well, and I saw Battle for Los An- Battle Los Angeles. I don't know if you saw that. I didn't. It, it, no, it, it's it's an alien invasion movie, and it, it's done. It's it's sort of platoon level alien. There's no scene of like the president and the advisors talking about nuking him or something like that. It, all everything is from the point of view of a platoon of or, or a squad of of marines, and there's a scene where they kill an alien and sort of search him, and I I was just waiting for somebody to pull out a little device and this holographic image of a, a woman alien and a baby alien appears and they say, oh, that must be his family. You know? <laughs> right. but, but they didn't do it. God bless him. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, so Tolkien didn't do it, and I, and I respect him for that. It's just that what that led to, and I think that, that again, I'm not saying it's a flaw, but I'm saying it, it, it's, it's his choice. And, and for those of us who want to understand him, have to understand his choices. Right, it is. And I mean, and as he, one of the things that I think is revealing about this, especially when you read his letters, um, it, it's particularly interesting when you read his letters during the World War II era, um, when he was writing to his son Christopher while Christopher was on active duty with the RAF in South Africa. Um, and he very frequently uses terms and names and concepts from the Lord of the Rings metaphorically, um, you know, as a kind of, uh, as, not, 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 not code words, but basically as, uh, as, as ways to refer to the things that, that, you know, he, in that he and Christopher will both understand. And, you know, he, he, he talks about this. Like, you know, he talks, he compares, for instance, at one point, he compares the Air Force, uh, and his, his discomfort with the Air Force, with the idea of the Air Force, um, of Englishmen flying in airplanes to go bomb things. Um, and he, he, he compares this to, you know, a, a battle to defend the Shire in which hobbits have to go up and ride fell beasts into battle and that there's this something jarring about this, that it's, on the one hand, yes, it's, it's good, yes, it's necessary, yes, I guess it has to happen, but there, it seems deeply wrong, uh, the means that are being taken in order to do this necessary thing. Um, but at the same, you know, probably the most, the most famous and I think telling point when it comes to this, w- with sort of most a- applicability back to his stories, is when he says that, of course, in the real war, there are orcs on both sides. 
And I think that that gives us uh, a helpful way to understand the function of the orcs uh, in the battles in his books. That you know, they he, as you say, he is not only has he not humanized them, he's gone out of his way to 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 no I, to unhumanize. I, I don't want to say dehumanize because it means something slightly different, but. Um, you know, not to have us relate to them in the same way. Um, the only two orcs that we get in any way kind of close to, we never really get close to Grishnak and Ugluk during the Merry and Pippin sequence, but but the conversation that we overhear between Shagrat and Gorbag uh, at the end of the two towers is the closest, I think, that we get to the humanizing of orcs, where we hear the two of them, and they're both of them complaining about their situations and how they really wish they could go off and set up on their own, uh, you know, with a few stout lads and where there are no big bosses. And um, now it's still kind of horrible because they're talking about they're talking about you know their fantasy of setting up their own bandit uh, you know stronghold where they will you know cheerfully waylay travelers and pillage and everything. But but nevertheless, the, the, there's this brief moment where you are kind of brought inside of like, well, you know, I can kind of see where these orcs are coming from and I guess, you know, they have some of the same motivations that we do and I might feel the same way that they do under certain circumstances. But then that's immediately, well, not immediately, of course, people had to wait a while for the Return of the King to come out, but as soon as we get the beginning of the Return of the King, we see Shagrat and Gorbag stabbing each other and, and uh, you know, <laughs> Shagrat stabbing Gorbag and licking his blood off his knife. And so, like, any any personal connect connection that we might have had to think like, you know, I can really see Shagrat's point of view um, is kind of immediately underdone uh, or, or rather undermined uh, by, the, by the subsequent action. So yes, we don't get that kind of connection right. and, and by the with way, the bad guys. I just want to say there for a moment that that's an important insight into warfare because it's clear that one of the, the huge disadvantages that the armies of evil have is that they are essentially run by the whip. Yes. That uh, no one dies for love of Mordor. You know, people don't say, you know, for for Sauron and Mordor, follow me, man. You know, it's like, charge the enemy because if you retreat, I'll kill you faster than, than, than they will. And so... Not, not that doesn't build for very good cohesion. Right. Uh, it doesn't build for very good, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, inter, uh, support of uh, other units. Uh, also, and this this is something else I find fascinating. And you know, maybe we can. And we've already gone an hour, so we can end on this point. Um, although I'd love to have another conversation with you at, at any time. But um, the evil leaders never personally command their armies. Yes. They send them off somewhere. I mean, yes, Morgoth is besieged in Angband, but but since his one fight with uh, Finn, was it Fingolfin, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and he's wounded and, and Tolkien tells us he likes to hide. He he he's he's afraid. Uh Sauron uh, they, you know, you, you say, well, gee, it's such a huge advantage to have Gandalf there. Uh if 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 Sauron, you know, I, I don't know, he can't leave that, that giant tower? You know, can, can he just, like, spear it down? Now, they all try it once, right? Okay, so, so Sauron personally came out to fight mm-hmm. in the, the, uh, the last alliance of, of elves and men, and Morgoth came out once. But the moment they're, they're hurt, from then on, 
they let other people do their fighting. You'd think, well, gee, wouldn't the, the horns, the the army of Urukai marching on uh, on 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 Helm's Deep, would it really would have helped them if Saruman had been there? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and of course, ironically, when not, I mean, it would have saved Saruman too. I mean, he was trapped in his tower by the Ents because he didn't go out with his army. Um, you know, th- that's another uh, kind of interesting thing to think about there, too. Again, another way in which... And I think there you can see Tolkien uh, being pretty deliberate about making that particular uh, uh, strategy uh, or on the part of Saruman backfire on him. Um, had he not stayed safely in his tower at home, he actually would have been a lot safer. Um, but no, it's true. And I would say that actually both of Morgoth and of, of, of Sauron, yes, Morgoth comes out to respond to Fingolfin, um, when he is, when he basically is compelled to in order to save face in front of, basically the whip is going to be much less effective, uh, if, uh, he lets himself get, uh, uh, get called a coward to his face in the way that Fingolfin was. But when he's finally confronted in battle, when the Valar finally come in in the War of Wrath, he is taken in the end, but uh, he is uh, but he is basically trapped. Um, see, he, he fled into the deepest of his minds and sued for peace and pardon, but his feet were hewn from under him and he was hurled upon his face. Um, he uh, He is... He is yet unvaliant, as he says. He is he's cornered and yet unvaliant. And Sauron was that way too. I mean, yes, he came out and fought in the uh, in the Battle of the Last Alliance, but only at the very end, like on the slopes of Mount Doom, when 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 the enemy had basically won. That is the enemy, his enemies, being the good guys, had finally won. Then he came out to fight, but only then uh, had he been leading from the beginning. Had would might things have been different. Um, no, definitely. Now, you know that that just on, on one point in ter- militarily, that is one instance where I'm thinking again. The only people who are thinking through on tactics are the enemy. Now, yes, you know if your army is hard pressed, like say a lot of Alexander the Great's battles began with him vastly outnumbered, mm-hmm. and his strategy was okay. I'm facing this huge army but it's an army that's completely centralized around the person of the Persian king. So, okay, my loyal companion cavalry, ignore everything else, just charge for the chariot of the the, the, the king of kings, the Persian right. king. And so you could say, well, okay, that was probably a pretty... The, the only tactic at that point that Sauron had was charge for the command force of the enemy, kill their kings, and break them. Right. And, and you know, it didn't work, but at least it was a pretty reasonable choice to make. <laughs> right, 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 yes, whereas Morgoth doesn't even, uh, doesn't even try that, uh, at the end, and he just, uh, hides and begs. Um, but no, that is clearly, that is clearly one of the, one of the big differences. You know, good leaders are, n- not only are there in the front, but are, but are self-sacrificially in the front. Um, you know, Fly, and, you fools! Yes, exactly. And Theoden's charge, and uh, you know, when he is out way out in front of everybody else as they're charging into the field, um, I mean, he's not just in the front lines; he's a, he's advance of the front lines uh, in in their great charge. Um, and yes, the 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 enemy the enemy never does that. And you know that I think is another. Uh, he was clearly interested in. You know, he had thematic ideas that he wanted to convey through his battles. But again, the battles themselves were not the story he was telling. They were the vehicle 
of the larger story. And that's why you get these patterns, even the repeated things, going back to your deus ex machina point, you know, the eagles popping up again and again and again. Um, you know, that is, that's, that's, because that's one of the that's one of the stories that he wants to tell. That's one of the that's one of his points of sort of how, uh, how Professor. I'm just thinking that maybe we can end on this uh, this evening because I think we've we've gone. Uh, yes, we probably yeah, should. But, but it's just, it's, uh, so I'm 11 years old and I've I finally read The Lord of the Rings and we, we had a very eager Tolkien uh, master at my school and uh, so the other kids know a lot about the, the, the Lord of the Rings and, and The Hobbit and so there was a soccer game with our rival school and we were losing and it was the last seconds I couldn't help myself and I said look the Eagles are coming <laughs> <laughs> some people got the joke I, I, other people just looked at me like Yo, wow you are a hopeless nerd you know? and I guess I am <laughs> That's pretty cool. Well, thanks for joining us. It's it's uh, it's it's great to to talk with uh, with somebody who has the kind of background on military history that you do to be able to to be able to to make these kinds of comparisons. It really it puts it in a very interesting context. Tolkien did know a lot of these things, and he would have been yes. thinking, you know, if not actively thinking about things like the Battle of Cannae and the tactics there. He was certainly, uh, you know, aware when you talk about you know heroism and especially battlefield heroism that he's not only thinking of of literary depictions of that in places like the Battle of Malden, but um, b- but but thinking about that historically as well, and um, and you know, and so it, I, I do think that it 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 opens up some really interesting insights uh, into Tolkien's interests and into to to a lot of what's going on in those parts of his stories uh, when we actually do make some of those close comparisons. So I think that's uh, that's very interesting. Anyway, thanks for thanks thanks for the call and thanks for suggesting the topic. That was fun. Well, thank you so much, and uh, just keep up the the great work you have. I'm sure you have a quite quite a fan base and people from all sorts of backgrounds who really appreciate uh, what you're doing. That has been really the most rewarding part of it. I, I, I mean, of course, Tolkien has uh, has so many great fans, and and you know has attracted so many uh, just really intelligent and interesting people who 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 really like to to read and think about his books. And so it has been uh, it has been really really fun and rewarding to be able to kind of be in touch with lots of people from lots of different perspectives. Um, and uh, and I've been kind of surprised at the breadth of that. You know, I kind of expected uh, that, I don't know, I, I, when I started off, I had sort of a, an idea of, uh, you know, that I would be primarily appealing to kind of a narrower demographic, but it that has not really been the case at all. It's been, and again, it's, you know, I think really a testimony to um, the fact that Tolkien has such a such a kind of surprisingly broad appeal in some ways, and also to the fact that I think that there are you know for for me personally you know uh, I've been very very interested in the fact that I think that there are a lot of people out there who are who are really interested in being involved in an academic discussion you know I think whenever I watch whenever I watch TV and things like the History Channel and stuff I always feel like why why do all 
why, you know, why, why do almost all TV networks insist on dumbing things down so much when, you know, my experience with interacting with people, there are so many thousands of people out there who are just thirsty for, you know, like an actually intellectually stimulating conversation and, and, and discussion to actually be a part of this kind of thing. And, uh, and there, there are not all that many outlets for most people in, in, uh, in, kind of regular American culture these days. So, And I want to tell your listeners, I'm an administrator, and so part of my job is fundraising. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to help <laughs> the cause of uh, Tolkien, uh, please donate $3 million to <laughs> Professor Corey Ol- Olson's uh, college so that he can have the Morgoth chair of his, uh, <laughs> on his business card. It, Yes, that would be cool. That would be cool. Yeah, but you'd almost have to name it something like that, wouldn't you? Yeah. I would. I yeah. promise. If I do it, I will. Very cool. Just, okay. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks very much. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another edition of Tolkien Chats. Don't forget to head over to www.mythgard.org to sign up for the spring course offerings of the Mythgard Institute. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.